Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Actually, one of the greatest presidents, in my opinion, I'm curious about yours, Eisenhower. I warned about this when he warned about the military industrial complex, Dan, you know that speech better than anybody. But he also, in that very speech, he warned of the dangers of a scientific technological elite that was to be put in charge of public policy, or as I call them, political scientists. People that by force of their knowledge are assumed to have wisdom. And then like Fauci, like Francis Collins, people that acted in complete disgraceful manners as scientists towards Jay Bhattacharya and towards Nobel Prize winners and, and other people and caused this conflation of scientific elite with political power to suppress and oppress people. Let's go. Welcome to Citizen. Today we have a very special guest, uh, Dr. Brian Keating. I believe you're the head of the physics department of University of California, San Diego. Is that correct? No, sir. That is not correct. God uh, damn maybe, it. maybe someday. If, if they don't watch this interview, Dan, then, then I have a shot at making chairman. <laughs> uh, no, I am uh, what's called the, the Chancellor's Distinguished Professor of Physics at UCSD, okay. um, you know, which is just kind of what's called an honorary chair. Um, in uh, recognition of my accomplishments academically and service and so forth. Um, so yeah, that that's my official title, and I'm a co-leader of one of the biggest cosmology experiments in the world called the Simons uh, Observatory, mm -hmm. Simons Array in Chile. I just got back from 17,200 <laughs> feet in the Atacama Desert. We'll get into that, I hope. Well, we're going to get into a lot of stuff. So, you know, for the listener, viewer out there, we're going to talk about science today. We're going to talk about um, we're going to talk about some of the stuff that's going on in academia, generally speaking, and on social media vis-a-vis. -vis, uh, I guess <clears throat> what you could call the invasion of Socratic meritocracy, right? Because that's kind of what uh, uh, we we've seen. <clears throat> let's just jump right into it. Fuck it. Um, We've seen a lot of the stuff from the Twitter file so far about, um, you know, censorship of one thing or another for uh, some variety of reasons. And, you know, when it comes to politics, honestly, that stuff's intolerable, but it's not something that I wouldn't expect to happen because everybody's got a motive there. When it comes to science and public health especially, then it becomes, uh, I think, quite dangerous for people. And... This is something that we're starting to see now. It was, <clears throat> I think, part of the third release. Um, and there's quite a bit more to come, uh, on, on, particularly on COVID policy. But um, what's what's the guy's first name? Dr. Uh, uh, it's Dr. J. Bhattacharya. Yeah, Bhattacharya. Yeah, he's, he's, uh, he was one of the guys who, one, is, you know, extremely qualified to discuss these things, and two... Uh, didn't tow the party line and was banned for it. I mean, a guy that's 
positioned quite a bit better than anybody that worked for Twitter to answer these questions was banned from sharing his perspective on it. Yeah, during the most critical phase, uh, arguably, in the history of COVID, you know, and uh, so I had a chance to speak with Dr. Bhattacharya. Actually, I met him in Italy, in Florence, Italy, which is very appropriate, Dan, because as you know, that's where the Inquisition took place of Galileo, my my grand you know, master of my hero <clears throat> in all things scientific. You know, he was basically in, imprisoned under house arrest uh, in Florence, Italy, outside Florence, Italy, <laughs> for the last nine years of his life for the great crime of speaking the truth to power, mm. uh, which was the Galileo affair, where he claimed rightfully so that the earth is not the center of the universe. Sounds benign today, but back then it was revolutionary, no pun intended. Uh, and that caused his uh, attention to be, now he also was a kind of a political buffoon. The guy was a little bit of a, you know, even more nerdy than I am. Uh, he was impolitic. He, he didn't have the kind of gravitas and grace that we uh, we would expect of somebody of his great brilliance but that brings up you know kind of the the most clarion called you know kind of that i've had in the last five years dan is that knowledge is almost anti-correlated anti-correlated with wisdom in other words you could be freaking brilliant get, win the nobel prize and be a total a-hole a moral coward mm -hmm. a fraud and a charlatan <laughs> and likewise you could be you know extremely wise but not have very, very much knowledge about quantum physics and wormholes and all the fusion and stuff we're going to talk about i hope too so the conflation of knowledge with wisdom has been one of the uh, kind of signal, you know, events in the last 50 years. And actually, one of the greatest presidents, in my opinion, I'm curious about yours, Eisenhower, I warned about this when he warned about the military industrial complex, Dan, you know, that speech better than anybody. But he also in that very speech, he warned of the dangers of a scientific technological elite that was to be put in charge of public policy, or as I call them, political scientists, people that by force of their knowledge are assumed to have wisdom. And then like Fauci, like Francis Collins, people that acted in complete disgraceful manners as scientists towards Jay Bhattacharya and towards Nobel Prize winners and, and other people and cause this conflation of scientific elite with political power to suppress and oppress people and almost ended his life. I mean, it's a, it's an amazing story. It is, yeah. And I recommend uh, uh, anybody that hasn't brushed up on this particular story yet on uh, Dr. Uh, Bhattacharya, definitely go check out um, uh, Brian Keating's YouTube channel. Check out his uh, interview with him and, and familiarize yourself with this because as these new Twitter releases come out about the COVID suppression, particularly, you're going to find a lot of carry, or I'm sorry, a lot of crossover and themes, That's not right. not just for tech and social media, but also within academia itself and within medicine itself. Um, right. I, I guess the way the way you illustrate this issue and connect it to uh, historical issues of, of uh, uh, I guess, similar import, it, it leads me to this <clears throat> question. What is the purpose of science? And then part B to that question is how do motives inside science from outside uh, that purpose negatively affect it, right? So, you know, how does yeah. somebody coming in with an agenda negatively affect, like the church and their agenda to maintain the, the uh, Earth-centric view of the universe, for example, it affected not, not, not just the individual Galileo's life or any other scientist that may have been fucked around with because of it, 
but it, it it it's we call these this period the dark ages for a reason right like who knows where we would be as a civilization now if that hadn't happened so anyways uh yeah. what's the let's start with the first one what is the purpose yeah. of science in a, in a society like this yeah i'm glad that you didn't ask you know what is the definition of science because there really is no one mm. definition Science can be done in many different ways. We all are scientists at one level. We test ideas, hypotheses. We uh, inculcate evidence. Uh, you know, we know if we cross the street uh, without looking both ways, as I tell my kids, you're going to get hit by a car. Uh, that's a scientific e experiment, you know, that you hopefully learn from other people's uh, hypothesis testing before you have to learn it the hard way. Mm. So we all are scientists. So there's no one scientific method. In fact, there's multiple ones. I, I talk about those in, in my second book, which was written with you know, nine Nobel Prize winners called Into the Impossible. Uh, and uh, the, the notion of the, the different ways that we define science uh, is up for debate, and that's healthy. Now, mm -hmm. the purpose of science is very different. The purpose of science is to take in empirical knowledge about the physical universe and use that for um, the betterment and flourishing of humankind, in my opinion. Uh, we are not the stewards uh, only of the earth. We're stewards of human beings and human flourishment depends on scientific progress, or I should say technological progress. But technology often comes because of basic scientific research. Not always. Sometimes there's serendipitous discoveries. Uh, the X-ray, you know, here's a famous one. Right. I mean, we didn't study quantum mechanics because it didn't exist in 1896 when the X-ray was invented. And yet it saved countless lives, made my life better, your life better. Uh, but that was serendipitous. So sometimes technology, on the other hand, comes from the actual application, like fusion could not occur serendipitously. We right. couldn't just have like fusion taking place. You can actually have fission taking place. I don't know if you knew this, but in Africa, about, about 3 billion years ago in Okolo, uh, Central Africa, Congo, I believe, uh, there was a natural fission reaction taking place because there was a critical mass of uranium that would flood and, and be part of an alluvial chain that would come back and forth. And eventually there'd be enough to form a critical mass that would incite a fission reaction. But fusion that just took place on a large, on a, you know, not a large scale, it's actually a small scale, <laughs> but on an important scale. That requires technology. That technology required basic scientific mm. research that the colleagues of mine and I do. So uh, the purposes, in my opinion, make life better, um, explore the universe and answer the fundamental question that only human beings can know. You know, the word homo sapien, uh, sapien means wisdom. It doesn't mean knowledge. Mm. Scientia, scientia means knowledge. So don't conflate the two of them. It turns out they can be useful. Like many things that get conflated, they have a they have some correlation. But in this case, the purpose of science is to make human life better mm. in all ways of in all ways that can mean. Um, I can't. I want to. I want to jump off from here, but I got to go back to this. You you said, uh, a nat there three billion years ago, and it happened where I'm taking notes here. Yeah, it took place. Uh, it's called the Okolo Natural uh, Nuclear Reactor, and it was uh, it was took place billions of years ago. I don't remember the exact age. It could have been about three billion. Now the Earth is only four point two billion years mm. old. Our solar system is only about four point five billion years old. And before I forget, Dan, with your permission, I'd like to offer you know these uh, specimens of the early solar system called meteorites. So mm. if you're watching the YouTube, you see them. If you're listening on audio, you'll hear them. Um, I want to guarantee I'll send one to every one of your viewership that has an APO mailbox, hopefully, you know, I don't know if it'll come in time for Christmas, Dan, it depends on when this is out, but go to briankeating.com slash list and use your APO address, full address, please guys. And I'll send you guys a meteorite because it's a tiny token of what I can do. These are 4.3 billion year old. 
They landed in um, somewhere in uh, in Argentina, where I was very close to recently. And it's a remnant of the early solar system. I'll send you some data about them that a friend of mine took in a nuclear spectroscopy lab. And it's really fun to learn about these things. So join my mailing list. APO address is guaranteed and .edu address is guaranteed to win. The rest of you uh, fellow listen- citizens, uh, you'll take your chances. First 100 of you will win. Yeah, that's good. Um, so... Okolo National Natural Nuclear Reactor, and it was uh, uh, just a critical mass of, of uranium. And what happened exactly? I mean, what, yeah, was, so when, was when, there an energy burst, or what, give me some details? Yeah, so obviously there were no you know people around <laughs> three billion years ago to mm-hmm. witness it. But what they have noticed on the cave, you know, that it's contained within, is that there was a regular periodic um, irradiation uh, and and transmutation uh, of the uh, uh, chemical elements within that cave that took place periodically correlated with apparently a flooding of the underground water system, this alluvial system that created the cave or is, is, was contained within the cave. So you'd have flooding and then there'd be just some chunk of rock. I mean, it's pretty amazing, Dan, right? That, that you take a chunk of rock, you could do this if you had enough of it. Mm. You just take two chunks of uranium and you put them next to each other and you get heat. And right. with that heat, you can get energy. With that energy, you can then convert it into steam. You can take that steam, spin a turbine wheel, and use what's called a starter generator, and you get actual electricity. Mm. So that's how we use fusion, uh, fission reactions today. Although, you know, in California, we've been desperately trying to shut down the cleanest form of energy, the greenest. <laughs> that's how you know they're frauds, by the way, Dan. Mm. When you talk to an environmentalist, I don't know if you talk to Michael Schellenberger mm. uh, or anybody like that, but you talk, and he was like one of the Greenpeace founders or whatever. Uh, you talk to people like that and also involved with the Twitty, Twitter files, as you know. Um, when you uh, talk to these people, who are, you know, Greta Thunbergs and whatever, they're just fraudulent because we know how to take uh, cleanest possible energy. It emits no carbon. What's clean? It emits no carbon dioxide. It doesn't rely on any combustion. They won't do it because they bring up this boogeyman of uh, Three Mile Island and, and they bring up the boogeyman of of, um, of Chernobyl, where as, it's actually pretty amazing. And in um, the 2011 earthquake in Japan, mm. nobody really died as a direct result of, you know, a possible. So people haven't been killed in meltdowns. Now, the Russians, of course, scumbags that they were at the time, <clears> and they <throat> still are. They sent people into the reactor, you know, to like to cover up. And actually, that was one of the first targets, wasn't it? Mm. In, the, in the beginning of this war was to secure that facility so they could cover their freaking dirty footprints, literally blood on the hand. My sister-in-law's from that region mm. of, uh, of Ukraine. Anyway, getting back to it. Fusion is the opposite. Fusion is even cleaner because it has zero nuclear waste products I mean, that are is, associated with it. This is a star. So hydrogen atoms uh, under the pressure of uh, gravity fuse together and become helium atoms and so on and so forth. And each time that happens, it produces energy. Exactly. So it's 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 unusual that if you combine something together, we're used to blowing something apart. That makes sense. It could give off energy. But actually, when you bind two nuclei together, as you just aptly said, that uh, releases energy as well. There's an excess binding energy, it's called. And that is orders of magnitude even higher than the fission reaction. And as you may know, and as your listeners may know, some of them may control these devices, right? You need a a fission device you need a fission device to initiate the compression of a fusion reaction 
in an atomic blast. So uh, we don't want to do atomic blast for generating energy. So the technology we'll get into later is radically different from that. But the atomic bombs dropped on you know Hiroshima and Nagasaki, those are used to initiate and ignite a fusion reaction, which is orders of magnitude more powerful. Mm. So that's what you know, czar bombas and stuff. They're not using uranium anymore, plutonium. They're using you know they're using hydrogen devices. Right. Um, <clears throat> so. We we discussed that was just uh, nerd stuff for me. I enjoyed that. Um, the The purpose of science is ultimately, if we had to distill it down to one sentence, to to you know, make human life better, right? Yes. Uh, and now we see increasingly more people, especially not 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 even just bureaucrats, but people within the science community, uh, physicians, and. Uh, you mentioned Francis Collins. He was the head of the Human Genome Project. I mean, one of the one of the most important pieces of work directly related to human beings ever completed, in my opinion. That's right. And now is essentially a, a, a bureaucrat that has motivations outside of the general purpose of science. And I think the separation of church and state between political actors. And the scientific community is is maybe more important than the actual separation of church and state, right? Because if its purpose is indeed <clears throat> to make human life better, and it frankly is probably best situated uh, of any anybody or of any group to accomplish that through whatever, whether it's through agriculture or through scientific discoveries of other kinds, um, we've really fucked it up here, um, and it's it, it's. It's hard to understand how it got this bad, to be honest. Well, I think, you know, uh, my friend Dennis Prager, you know, often says that, you know, the, the left ruins everything and that it touches. Uh, you don't see this kind of politicization from the right. And um, I'm, I'm no far right. I'm no far left. Uh, certainly not far left, but uh, I'm closer to, you know, consider moderate. Um, of course, everyone thinks of themselves as a moderate. But anyway, um, the politicization of science has come purely from one political persuasion, as has the Twitter, you know, kind of suppression, the YouTube suppression. This this video that I posted with Jay Bhattacharya, um, you know, an hour and a half, we're talking about uh, philosophy, we're talking about the Renaissance. It gets slapped with a huge COVID-19 warning, directing you to Wikipedia, which at heart is run by, you know, uh, people of extreme left-wing persuasion. If you look into the Wikimedia uh, Foundation at some point, I urge you guys mm -hmm. to do that. And I've stopped donating to them because of that. So when you when you you know think about well who controls the narrative, uh, you know there are many different types of science. Look, Galileo was right, but he actually used an incorrect form of of logical reasoning or incorrect fact pattern to establish the claim that he made. In other words, he <clears throat> he was right that the Earth goes around the sun, not the other way around, but he used a completely erroneous form of evidence to establish that. And, and effectively, he was claiming that the fact that on Earth we have four tides a day, that was uh, evidence for the simultaneous rotation. Say I take this uh, hard AF uh, seltzer that I'm drinking, mm -hmm. and I uh, rotate around the camera around my head. He said that motion around my head, the head being the sun, the hard AF being the, um, the actual, um, the Earth, but that in combination with the rotation of the tumbler on its axis that caused that's total bs tides are not caused by that they're mm -hmm. caused by the moon's gravity differentially pulling by the inverse square law mm -hmm. on 
on the closer part of the Earth's surface with a 6,000 mile, 8,000 mile diameter of the Earth, that difference between the close side to the moon and, and the far side divided by the 250,000 mile distance to the moon squared is actually significant enough to get a one or two foot change in height of the ocean relative to the 5,000 foot depth of the you know average right. uh, mean sea. Okay. So he was totally wrong about that, but he was right about the hypothesis. So who's right? Tony Fauci, funded gain of function research. He admitted it, right? He admitted it, but he changed the definition. He changed the gain of function is within a bat to a bat to make the bat virus, you know, more easy to study or something like that. Um, it, you know, in the interview with Jay Bhattacharya, I joked like when I had COVID, I, I luckily only had it once. Somehow my wife's avoided it. I, I don't know how she does. She just walks around in like one of those NBC suits all day. Um, <laughs> this episode is brought to you by BlackRifleCoffee.com. Get 20% off your first order with the code CITIZEN. Black Rifle Coffee is the best coffee company in the world. They're our buddies. But we're not just saying that. We also are customers. Join the Black Rifle Coffee Club and get fresh roasted freedom delivered straight to your door. Black Rifle Coffee Company is veteran-operated and supports America's military, law enforcement, and first responders. Not just by saying they do, which is what a lot of companies do, but they actually do it. They give you the best coffee, and they also send coffee to uh, to these guys on the front lines, the people that support uh, support us. So get premium coffee delivered every month. Choose your favorite roast, whether you like light, dark, or medium. Choose the grind. Whether you want ground coffee, uh, whole beans so you can ground it yourself, which is what I recommend, or coffee rounds if you're in an office or something like that, and you need uh, Keurig. You can also choose your delivery schedule, and it'll come to you anytime you like. Members also get free shipping and access to exclusive partner discounts. Get 20% off your first order with the code CITIZEN. Go to BlackRifleCoffee.com and get those deals today. Next up is GhostBed. GhostBed.com forward slash Bros. Right now, GhostBed is offering a 40% off GhostBed bundle where you get a mattress and an adjustable base. So you don't need a code for that. You just add the mattress and the adjustable base, uh, and it'll apply auto-apply 40% off. And then anything else you add to that order, also 40% off. For everything else, you can use the code DRINKINGBROS at ghostbed.com forward slash DRINKINGBROS, and you're going to get 30% off everything on the site. Now, they have the best sheets, mattresses, pillows, covers, all this stuff. You can get, all, you can get your entire bedroom suite here, and you can get it all for 30% off a month. But wait, there's more. You can buy a mattress for about, you can buy the whole thing for about 35 bucks a month because they have a zero down, 0% financing plan that extends out to 60 months. That's five years, which is about the amount of time that a bedroom suite lasts. So that's a great deal, folks. Go check it out at ghostbed.com forward slash drinking bros. This episode is also brought to you by Lucy. Lots of adults choose to use nicotine, but there's a right way and a wrong way to do it. If you're one of the millions of adults who use nicotine, you know that not all nicotine products are the same, and there's one new product that stands above the rest. Lucy Breakers are the only nicotine pouch that give you a blast of flavor from the first moment all the way to the last. Nobody likes gum or pouches or anything that lose their flavor rapidly. It just becomes tedious. Each pouch contains a capsule that you break open to release the rush of flavor that doesn't fade away like those other pouches, you know, the ones that rhyme with thin. They come in so many flavors, mint, berry, citrus, 
mango, even espresso. And you don't have to go to the gas station or corner store to get them. You can just order online and they'll show up straight to your door. Plus, if you subscribe, you'll save 15% and you'll never have to worry about running out. Uh, they, the flavors are really delicious. And if you're one of those people that uses nicotine as a nootropic, like a lot of, uh, like we've talked about here in the past and on Drinker Bros in the past, this is one of the best ways I could possibly think of to use this stuff. So whether you're using nicotine while you're working, creating, or playing, or whatever it is, Lucy Breakers are the intelligent choice. And we've got a special deal for our listeners. Get $10 off your first order when you use the promo code CITIZEN at checkout. Shipping is always free. Lucy.co, promo code CITIZEN, to receive $10 off and free shipping. Visit Lucy.co for more details. And uh, we thank Lucy for sponsoring the podcast. Big fan of these guys. Um, and here comes the fine print. Obviously, Lucy products are only for adults of legal age. Every order online is age verified. This product contains nicotine, and nicotine is an addictive chemical. And so, you know, I haven't, I haven't uh, gotten to like hold her hand in three years. But anyway, the um, the uh, when I had COVID, I lost like five pounds, and you know, I always joke, I dropped five pounds from my double chin to my ass. But in reality, can you imagine that there are, Dan, some positive effects? Like you could engineer something so you could lose weight or, you know, obviously you don't want to do it with a pathogen that killed, what, 7 million people around the world. But in other words, that was scientific, Dan. It wasn't a scientific. Fauci's not like some like bumbling clod who didn't know. No, he actually wrote the textbook that Jay studied with, ironically, as a young medical intern, right? So he is a scientist. He understands science. But where it got bad is when he became a political scientist right. and started advocating for politics. And as I mentioned in the interview, at the expense of human life, I don't know if, if you've thought about this, but there are people, doctors on the left. And one is here in San Diego, Dr. Eric Topol. I had him on my podcast. He was one of the foremost opponents of releasing the vaccine, the, the BioNTech Pfizer vaccine, mm -hmm. before the 2020 election. Because he figured, rightfully so, that Trump would get credit for that. Mm. And that was, in his mind, almost as dangerous at some level. This has been reported elsewhere. I'm just mm. kind of summarizing. I may have some <clears throat> of the facts wrong. But um, but if that's true, and let's assume it is, then then people died, right? Because the, the vaccine, in his mind, what eventually is effective. Right. But for political reasons, he withheld it. Or he advocated. He didn't control it. But he was one of the ones that advocated that it could accrue and accrete to Trump's benefit. So I think that that could mean that people who advocate like that have blood on their hands, sure. even by their own admission, if they believe the vaccine is flawed. I got vaccinated. Um, you know, my kids did not. And and I refuse to get them vaccinated because it's pointless mm. uh, for them uh, in all ethical, all studies that we've shown. And actually, Jay discussed that as well. Jay Bhattacharya, he co-wrote the Great Barrington Declaration, which advocated for common sense, strategic application Vaccines were appropriate. Lockdown, not well, he doesn't call them lockdowns. They're basically lock, taking the elderly and segregating them away because they're the most vulnerable and letting life go on. Otherwise, there'd be huge downstream effects. Now, he's a scientist. He's actually an MD, PhD. So he's not, most doctors, by the way, Dan, aren't scientists. They don't do like, I hope that they're not. Like, I don't want my, you know, my brain surgeon. I'm going to do this experimental procedure, you know, because I'm really curious what happens with my hypothesis. No, screw that. I want you to just like go down the checklist like a car mechanic, okay? And no offense to doctors or car mechanics intended. But the point is, they're not scientists. They're not testing hypotheses. They're not uh, doing, you know, kind of, uh, some are, but, 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 you know, your doctor, your pediatrician, whatever is not. Right. I, and, and that's good. Thing. Yeah. I, I think uh, so. <clears throat> The United States is set up um, 
in uh, a, a Western manner to have civilian control of the military for a reason, right? Because, yes. uh, uh, you know, that the, the military is a weapon to use in defense of the country, not the country itself. And, 100%. But, but we're, we're in a position now because of the grant funding and public safety and public health stuff that there is a, a de facto civilian control of science as well. And I'm, you know, I can, I can see good and bad parts of that. I can see the bad parts where it's been politicized. I could see the good part. If anybody with any common sense would have said, Hey, Fauci, maybe let's not do this stuff because it's dangerous. By the way, we outlawed it and you're still doing it. What the fuck's going on here? You know what I mean? (laughs) A a little civilian control. Certainly with pathogens. You're right. Yeah. A little civilian control may have um, been a good thing. Why do you think in this case with COVID, um, that people widely flouted common sense and reason, which, by the way, is perhaps the scientist's most useful tool. Uh, like, I realize it's all politics and blah, blah, blah. But this time it was a little bit different than the normal political spin machine. It was forced vaccinations, ostracizing people from society, get people getting fired, people getting kicked out of the military and all this stuff. Didn't make a lot of sense to me. I mean, honestly, this, that's, not, that's not how we've ever done things before. You're absolutely right. And actually, I, I never thought of it until you said that, Dan, you know, the military. I, I of course, I knew what you said. The, the president, you know, is a civilian. Um, but um, but it's absolutely correct, because what did they call it? What did we call it originally? We call it the war on COVID. We call it a war on COVID. Right. And, you know, you can debate whether or not it should have been a war. It was more virulent. And, and they were worried. And I urge you to watch this video because Jay goes through a slideshow that is not to be missed in this in this video i mean he said in, he said it. in march of 2020 it's like we don't need to be locking people down it's going to be old people that are in sick people that are most affected by this because the narrative these days is oh we didn't know that at the time it's like dude one of the most prominent scientists on earth told you exactly that a month into this thing and, and you and you shut him down him. Yeah. Then they smeared him. No, it's worse than imagine if Miley <laughs> or whoever, you know, and you're serving. Uh, thank God you didn't serve under him. Right. But mm. imagine if he called you like a lunatic. Imagine if you're command, you're the, the, the soldiers that are men are serving underneath you and they read in the in the in the, you know, from a FOIA request that he called you a lunatic or a fringe person. Mm-hmm. And this is a scientist talking to Fauci and then Fauci agrees with it now. It's worse in some ways because if you uh, not only did it hurt him, so like it smeared all the people, all the young professors, all the young scientists of all different genders, persuasions, uh, et cetera, et cetera, for immigrants. Uh, it smeared all of them. They're all tainted. Now, they, Collins was the head not only of the Human Genome Project. That was that was successful. He was the head of the entire National Institute of Health mm-hmm. at the time. He's since retired and Fauci's going to retire. But, you know, it's almost impossible. Just everybody out there, you work at a car dealership, you work at a construction line, you work for somebody. And then the boss of the company comes down and says, your boss is a scumbag. Mm -hmm. Uh, You don't have uh, as much confidence. And now what are you going to ask him for a letter of recommendation? (laughs) Forget it. They're screwed. And um, this wouldn't have been revealed. They were all doing it in the shadows. And I I say shame on them. I think it's totally disgraceful. And it undoes, you know, in some ways, like we believe in forgiveness. Jay's a devout uh, Christian. I'm a devout Jew. Um, Collins supposedly is devout Christian. 
to to do it. And Jay says he can he can forgive him, but it's going to take time. I, I in Judaism we don't have the you know Judaism is more hardcore. Mm. <laughs> you know we're like we're not going to forgive until you you know demonstrate under the exact same circumstances that you would never do it again. And you make public you know there's a there's a famous story a mushal we call it a mushal a story parable about a man who slanders his rabbi. Uh, it's called lashon hara, evil tongue is what it literally means in Hebrew. And he says about the rabbi, whatever, and it's true. It's like gossip. So, okay, so it's, and he goes to the rabbi and says, "I feel really bad, rabbi. I I did this horrible thing. I I told gossip about you. It's true, but I told that I shouldn't have done it. How can I get repentance to shuva?" And the rabbi says, "Just get me one feather pillow." The guy's like, "Awesome, that's easy." Goes to his house, gets a feather pillow. The rabbi says, um, "Okay, great." And the guy says, "What's next?" He goes, "Cut the pillow open." All right, if you say so. It's I guess I lost a pillow, but I'll gain a friend. Cuts it open. And the rabbi says, there's just one more thing, and then you're forgiven. Collect all the feathers. You can't collect all the feathers. Once they're out there in the world, the damage has been done. You know, toothbrushes and words, you know, they can't be returned once you've used them. Now, you can hope in the Christian, I know, in Christian philosophy, and even in Judaism, you can repent. But these people show no inclination towards that. And the sad thing to me is that most of my colleagues are okay with it. And... Um, it's disappointing. Really, Dan, I, I didn't get into science for the money. I'm a public uh, employee of the state of California. Um, I was a public uh, school kid growing up and uh, and I serve the public now and I give back through my YouTube channel because I think, you know, scientists that take money from the government, as we all do, we all are beholden to the government for the research and the training that we get on uh, the facilities. So I believe we have a moral obligation as scientists to explain to people like your listenership uh, and maybe especially your listenership, because they many of them are are so uh, doing things that we don't, uh, you know, scientists don't usually have the courage to do, like serve in the U.S. military. But anyway, the point is, we should give back, and we don't. And so this disappointment with my colleagues has really, it's kind of disillusioned me. If it wasn't the best job, if it wasn't like scratching that itch that I know that many of your you and your listeners have, it's just like so curious about the universe and love. Like, imagine if I could just do that. That's mm -hmm. why I got into it. Not for all this bullshit. Yeah, it's uh, it's really um, it's really sad to be honest. And it's uh, you know, but we can't spend too much time uh, contemplating how sad it is because there's still a lot of work to be done. Now, the two most obvious, in my opinion, maybe maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong about this, but the two most obvious ways in which this. The, it, it's not a new political phenomenon. It's like you said with Galileo. I mean, it's happened uh, many, many times over the course of human history. Copernicus. I yeah. mean, it's 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 happened quite a bit. Um, <clears throat> but the, at least in our lifetime, the mo the most obvious uh, examples are certainly COVID, with especially with the collusion between big tech and government and all the stuff. But uh, then the energy sector um, with the you know all the propaganda the alarmist nonsense about the world's going to end in 10 years every it's like it's essentially um uh what do you call it jehovah's witnesses who incorrectly predict the end of the world every couple of years um <laughs> and the the alarmist stuff surrounding nuclear energy as well which as you animated is the cleanest version of energy that we have currently and, and nothing else even comes close i mean germany had uh, 15 years ago, I believe they had six nuclear reactors in their country that, that provided the bulk of their energy. They've shut down uh, three of them. One was in the process of being shut down, it still is, but, and they were planning on shutting down the other two this year, but have had to stop 
because now all of their energy comes from Russia and that's not a great deal. Right. Um, that's right. So <laughs> I, besides all the political factors, <clears throat> it is in no way a humanist viewpoint that we should irrationally and over quickly switch to renewable energy that isn't ready for prime time as, as my pal Alex Epstein likes to say, uh, people don't die from the heat. They die from the cold, right? The vast majority of people who die from weather exposure, it's the cold. I mean, it, when yeah, I say vast majority, I'm talking about 95%. That's right. Yeah. In human history and maybe, you know, in the near, near term future with uh, Europe and on the, the throes of uh, many different uh, economic, political and military, you know, uh, forces and just, you know, beholden to the weather. Um, I think the scientists gets a long view uh, that doesn't make them wise, but it makes them kind of should make them appreciate. Uh, now, if you are a true believer, see, I, I believe I know you're not like a religious fanatic at all. Um, and you're not maybe even at the you know level of practicing that maybe I am. But but the point is, I think everybody needs a religion or has a religion at some at some point. Some some people it's, you know, Texas football. Some people it's it's uh, it's environmentalism. Some people it's politics. And some people it's science. And I know many, many of those types in the latter category. Uh, it doesn't mean that they can't also have, you know, be actually, you know, religious observant or any one of those adherents to the other categories that I mentioned. But the point is there's something in human nature that that almost needs something to worship as if we have some innate humility that we know that we sort of have this imposter syndrome at some level that nobody's the smartest person who ever lived. No one's the strongest person that ever lived. And we're ultimately, you know, the ultimate expression of what sapienza means or sapien and homo sapien is that we know we're going to die. Have you ever thought about that? We're the only animal, quote unquote, you think we're animals, uh, that knows that life is is short. Mm -hmm. You know, your dog, your cat, they don't know shit, right? They, they don't know what's going to happen. They, they could die tomorrow. They could die in, uh, in you know, 50 years if they're a tortoise. So humans have this unique capacity. And I don't know why. There's only one species. It's very weird, right? Mm. There are all these monkeys. There are all these different types of tortoises. Uh, there's, you know, a thousand species of beetle that live just in California. Um, but, uh, but there's only one animal, one species that knows it's going to last only for a perishable amount of time. And so I think because of that, we we want to worship something because maybe we want to believe in a fairy tale or a fantasy that there's some life or ultimate justice beyond. And I'm not going to get into that. But the, the point is that people believe so strongly and that it becomes their identity. You know, you can't separate Jay's Christianity from who he is. You can't separate, you know, my Judaism or, or my Americanism uh, from who I am and who you are. That's part of who we are. It's our identity. I'm a pilot. I fly little Cessnas around. That's part of my identity. So humans are complicated. And in this situation, I think we have to kind of notice that. The problem is people put so much importance on science and scientists per force because we create so much technology. It's almost a shame. Like if we only did theoretical physics, like, I mean, people don't like say, listen to the mathematicians, right? Because, you know, when was the last thing like, um, you, know, like you use like higher order algebraic theory? Like you never do, right? Mm. It produces zero useful technology. Of course, for us, it, you know, it's incredibly important as physicists, even experimental, but it doesn't produce technology. So we worship things that produce technology because of the benefits it, it accrues to us. And, and I think, again, that's that's really dangerous. I mean, just come to one of my faculty meetings <laughs> and tell me that these are the people that should run the world and they should be allied fellow travelers with the people that run social media. 
Um, I'm wondering like what's going to happen with, with YouTube. I mean, can YouTube, I mean, you guys, like when I started talking to you two years ago, it was one of my favorite interviews, mm. kind of turned the table on you at one point. Um, and, and that was really fun for me. Um, but you had almost the same number of subscribers on YouTube mm. as you do now. And I'm like, I look to you as like a standard and I'm like, shit, I, I can't, you know, I, I, what's the point? Like, why am I trying to grow on YouTube? My, my, my little channel for nerds. Um, it's pointless. I'm just going to get suppressed and and de de platform demonetized like you are. Um, so I don't know. Do you have any more hope, Dan? I mean, can you give me any more optimism for, you know, like why I should be putting effort into you know kind of social media? Well, about YouTube specifically, I would say probably not. I mean, yeah. if you think about the the reach of uh, YouTube versus the reach of Twitter or the reach of Facebook, Instagram versus Twitter, it's light years apart. I mean, Google is is the most dominant website on the entire planet and YouTube is where most videos are viewed. So That's right. you have to wonder how much, if, <clears throat> if Twitter can have the impact that we know it's had uh, after all of these releases, imagine what Google's done, imagine what YouTube's done, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's kind of depressing. And then you have to, um, you have to be, kind of beholden to it you know at some level they own it and it's their platform they're sending it out they're monetizing it for you uh if you're if you're lucky enough to not be on their blacklist uh, at the same token like i feel there's been a change in the wind and i predicted this too that you know it's going to go from trump is hitler you know to desantis is hitler and now musk is hitler you know it's like literally you're hearing this stuff from people like you know kara swisher and uh and 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 this guy scott galloway mm -hmm. i think you've had on your show he came on your show he won't come on my show it's it's very it's very uh, kind of annoying this guy uh you know is 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 all he talks about i mean elon is so lucky he lives like completely rent free in scott galloway's <laughs> mind <laughs> and it's all they talk about with swisher and she basically accused him because he put trump back on Twitter, which he hasn't been on, mm. of the Colorado, the horrific Colorado shooter being responsible for the Colorado shooting. And then Matt Walsh and Ben Shapiro, who she tried to have deplatformed from YouTube. Uh, she's a real mendacious person. And uh, and this guy Galloway is just like on, you know, just like they're like marriage, married, you know, uh, partners or whatever, uh, except, you know, it must be a strange relationship. Anyway, sure. So, you know, I've invited him on. You know, I'm a professor at a top university, you know, uh, the name chair and run a podcast channel and YouTube channel about as big as his. And, you know, just give me a courtesy after three months. And I was introduced by our mutual friend, James Altucher, you know, who's a great, gracious mensch of a friend. Guy doesn't respond to my emails for three months. I'm like, you know, I've had 14 Nobel Prize winners on my podcast, Scott. I said to him at the end, I'm like, I give up, you know, best of luck to you and your book. You know, mm -hmm. tried to help you out not going to work. And, uh, you know, you keep tweeting about, you know, how Trump is responsible for, for, you know, the next coming of the third Reich, fourth Reich. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, here, here's the thing you're, you're describing multiple different, uh, pockets of stupidity here, but it's, it, it all betrays the same fundamental problem that we're experiencing. So skepticism is one of the most important features of science. It's one of the most important tools you as a human being will ever have in your tool belt because as soon as we became sentient we started trying to trick each other into shit you know what i mean for yeah. for at the lower level from human pair bonding 
You know what I mean? Putting out the right yeah. signals to get the kind of meat you want. It's, it's not always nefarious, but it is always present. Uh, so skepticism is probably the most important feature of, of human life. And when yeah, it's so interesting you say that. You know, I always say, I'm sorry to interrupt you, Dan, mm. but but um, the, the, all those things are zero sum games, right? If you don't get that mate, you know, you're you're you know, the peacock next door is going to get the mate. Um, exactly as you said, if you don't get that uh, mango, uh, the other monkey is going to get the mango. So it's deeply rooted in evolutionary theory. Game theoretic, um, you know, is part of Darwinian evolution. It's actually encoded in in you know in 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 you know biological uh, evolution. So. But what's different about science, science isn't a zero-sum game. It's an in, what's called an infinite game. A zero-sum game is like chess. There's mm -hmm. a winner and a loser. <clears throat> an infinite game, the goal of the game is to keep playing the game. It's like, you know, when you're with, well, I'm with my kids, I know you don't have them, but, but like, I don't want to like, like the game to end. I'm chucking a football to my, to my, to my 10-year-old. No, I want that to go on forever. That's mm. super fun, right? Yeah. That's, that's like one of the best experiences of humanity, you know, I've ever experienced, right? So, but science is comprised of uh, uh is comprised of a series of finite games in other words there's getting into college there's getting in and if you get in someone else won't get in if there's getting in graduate school getting a postdoc getting a professorship getting tenure there's only so many slots winning a nobel prize these are all levels of the academic ladder that are all game theoretic but uh but the ultimate aim of science is not winnable there's an infinite amount of information human mind can only comprehend a finite amount of information mm. so it's an infinite game comprised of um, uh, many, many finite games. You're absolutely sure. right that this is ingrained in who we are. And so skepticism is the claws. You know, we don't have the sharpest claws in the jungle, the sharpest teeth. We're not as strong as a, as a moderately aged chimpanzee. Um, and yet we can, we dominate them all. We could exterminate every species on earth, including ourselves. Mm. Yeah. And it's, uh, here's where it becomes, here's where that great potential becomes a real problem when the people in society who we truly need to be skeptical like journalists and the media generally speaking and uh, commentators authors writers whatever and scientists when these people begin uh, becoming influenced by politics and power or colluding with politics and power worse we're fucked like that's it for us yeah, um, let's not dwell too much more on this, Dan. I, I don't want to get too depressed, but I, I do feel like uh, there's so much good stuff in science. So, uh, what I want to ask you is, from the from a layperson's perspective, um, and you're obviously very well educated, very well read. I got to replace that Neil deGrasse Tyson book behind you with the Brian Keating book. I'll, I'll I'm I'm supposed to maybe go on Lex's podcast again mm -hmm. in, in uh, the winter. I'm going to come visit you. Hopefully, we can do one in person together. Yeah, I'd sure. love to see you in person. I'll bring you some books of mine, some meteorites for you as well. But um, but when you see things that are happening in in science, um, do you think that like science is sort of monolithic or or is it redeemable? I mean, there are certain things like until recently, I didn't think Twitter was redeemable. And it only, by the way, was redeemable because Musk spent forty five billion dollars of his own money. He's going to lose it all. I mean, he's going to lose a lot of it. It's very hard. To, you know, that's one place where Scott Galloway is right. The Doing the math is is uh, not in Elon's favor. Unfortunately, now nah, he can take it. But um, I worry more about Elon, by the way, uh, for the distraction from his ultimate mission, which is which is, you know, getting pe people off the planet. And that might be because I'm a scientist, uh, but I do realize how much good he's done. I kind of wish he would stop going on, you know, Chappelle. And, and mm. you talked about that yesterday. Uh, but, you know, it's it's like at a certain point. Like, come on, man. Get, either get back to Mars or get back to Twitter. Yeah. 
or, or just take a fucking break. I mean, the guy's got nine or 10 kids. I, he, I don't think he knows. Um, and I respect the hell out of him. And by the way, he had Jay Bhattacharya at Twitter headquarters yep. just this week to go over the results of the Twitter uh, file and also look into things like verification. Like I wasn't verified, you know, for five years, I had to keep submitting, like I'm a name chair professor at top university. You have my, uh, you know, a, a address at, at campus, you know, my email, you know, the, you know, my profile, I don't have that many followers, but whatever. Every time, not significant. And then I'd see some congressman, you know, with pronouns in his bio. Fine, you can do that. Uh, from Colorado, running a, a com congressman, you know, um, uh, you know, whatever, uh, aspiring congressman, candidate, yeah, or, or woman, and uh, and candidate, and with fifty followers, and they're verified, you know, because they're running, or, or some like local uh, newspaper, you know, that has fifty subscribers. And I'm like, what's the deal here? So they had a collusion. I'm like to Jay. I told Jay, tell Elon that. If you're if you have verified publications and peer-reviewed journals, mm. that should count as verified identity. And by the way, someone can't go onto like Nature or Science Magazine and use my name because it's verified via my academic institution, and we have social credit scores, so to speak, in academia. Anyway, that's a sidetrack. But um, but ultimately, mm. when you look at science, mm. are you looking to it like um, with hope, or are you kind of plagued by this notion that the kind of mind virus is going to infect? science to the point that it won't be that kind of uh, perception that you have rightfully, and I had for a long time. Um, are you worried about the future of science as a lay person? Um, I mean, I am worried about the future of how we practice science, but not science itself. I, I You kind of hinted at it uh, not being a monolith. I agree with that. I mean, um, <clears throat> I don't even see science itself as corrupted at this point. I think it's just like all the other avenues of, of life politics, economics, whatever the fuck else. Um, there's a lot of noise to me. It's more like a windshield that needs to be cleaned. Right. So I can see through it clearly again, but the, the, we, we haven't lost what it is. And I think most reasonable people, uh, can, can see that they, they see, I'm going to make some assumptions. I'm going to test those assumptions and I'm going to spit out the report. And then I'm going to analyze that report. And I'm going to make some more assumptions. I'm going to test those assumptions and go on like that forever. Right. And yeah. sometimes it will get influenced by politics. For example, if there's a critical, not, not just politicians, but if there's a critical mass of the public that wants to mm -hmm. make it to the moon in seven years, we can do that. You right. know what I mean? Having right. using 400 year old Newtonian physics, by the way, to, to land on the goddamn thing. There's a lot of stuff that we can accomplish through political will. So I don't think the two things are at odds with one another. I think right. the intermediary that's trying to capture your attention and trick you into shit. That's the problem. It's not science. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's true. And, and, you know, I think the, the, the level that a layperson has to know science in order to trust science Thankfully, it's pretty low, right? I mean, most I got my kids normal flu vaccine because it was a normal flu vaccine, but uh, but but it's very different from uh, you know an mRNA uh, vaccine. So you know, and, and whatever I got it, so uh, I can't really speak. Um, you know, but 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 again, there was a lot you know in that in those in those phrases. You know, everything from you know two weeks to slow the spread. I mean, that all came from scientific forecasting, right? So we've gotten so many things wrong that I believe it's in the best interest of science, you know, to kind of portray ourselves in a more humble, mm. you know, uh, light. And actually the famous Nobel laureate, Richard Feynman, 
uh, he said that science should be considered the belief in the ignorance of experts. Mm -hmm. As you said, Newton was right, and all you need is Newton to get to the moon, but to get to a black hole, you know, you need Einstein. Or, or to build GPS, actually to navigate on Earth, you need Einstein, mm -hmm. not, not just Newton. Um, because we use general relativistic corrections in the time coding of the GPS triangulation scheme. So that would be impossible. Now, so if Einstein just thought, well, Newton's an expert, <laughs> he knows everything, experts know everything, right? Uh, so no, you have to doubt and you have to question, but you have to do it with humility. And I feel like right now there's not a lot of humility in science, A, because we have kind of drunk the Kool-Aid ourselves, but B, because we've lost the sense of comity and collegiality that used to typify, you know, kind of the, I, I can't, you know, I'd, I'd like to be wrong about that, but, you know, God forbid we need another Manhattan Project type thing. I, yeah. I don't know if like colleagues, you know, maybe it's so monolithic now, you know, on one political schism versus the other that it wouldn't make any room for friction because everyone just monolithically sure. agrees. I can't imagine uh, so. that the the bulk of mathematicians and physicists are somehow leftists. That wouldn't make sense to me because they don't think that it's true. way. You know no, no, I mean? no, you're wrong. It's It's totally true. They are. So how how did that happen? I mean, I don't understand. I don't I don't understand how you can be so logical on one side and then so uh, completely illogical on the other. That doesn't well, make sense. I think it's you know it harkens back to Churchill said you know if you're if you're not a liberal you know in your twenties you have mm -hmm. no heart and if you're not a conservative in your thirties or forties you have no brain mm -hmm. and I think they've kind of you know most people stunt their growth or stop their growth and I'm not you know that's just his quote right I'm not, I'm not saying my colleagues I mean I'm I'm not the smartest you know one by far and I I always say. You think I'm smart, you know, just watch me try to figure out which letter comes after Q. You know, I have to I have to sing the freaking alphabet song. Um, but that's OK. You know, I have other skills and and uh, and they kind of uh, marry together in an interesting way. I always um, point to Ed Witten. Anytime anybody's like, oh, you sound pretty smart. I'm like, Ed Witten's smart. I'm a fucking I'm basically a But he's an idiot. But he's a moral idiot. Oh, yeah. Because yeah. he believes yeah, yeah. in the Palestinian right to almost self-immolation of the Jewish people. Mm -hmm. And he believes every single thing reflexively that Noam Chomsky or any of these idiots will, and Noam's been a guest on my podcast, Witten won't come on my, so yeah, that's the proof, actually, thank you. That's the yeah. proof that knowledge is not equal to wisdom because he doesn't realize <clears throat> that a state the size of New Jersey in the Middle East where Jews have come, you know, since millennia for a thousand, I mean, there's no doubt about it, mm. but he believes they should make peace with people that are lobbing rockets and stabbing teenagers in the neck and slaughtering people. And that the famous quote is, you know, if, if, uh, if the Palestinians laid down their arms, there'd be peace tomorrow, there'd be no more war. And if the Jews laid down their arms, there'd be no more Israel. And that, you know, unfortunately, they've been given so many opportunities. And all he does is reflexively retweet so you, Peter Beinhardt and yeah, everything yeah. else. So, so it gives so me is, hope that it's just knowledge like, is not wisdom. It's just like the I support the current thing ideology. <laughs> but it's the, the most brilliant, at least as far as how human beings generally measure brilliance, it's the most brilliant people in the world that still get captured by this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And I think so. And I think we worship... Because of the size of somebody's brain and, and and their accomplishments, we, again, every four years, Dan, you realize that there's a letter written to the New York Times by 70 Nobel Prize winners plus about why you should vote for the particular Democrat in office. You're mm -hmm. telling me that like, and it's never been, they've never endorsed a Republican. 
And then they'll endorse things like Obama's Iran deal or they'll endorse this uh, vaccine safety. Remember, there was 50 or 60 Nobel Prize winners endorsing Peter Daszak that he shouldn't written, uh, have the Eco Health Alliance funding be cut. And that was political thanks to Trump. And, and that was where the gain of function took place, as even now Fauci is admitting. Yeah. So these are Nobel Prize winners. But by the way, what the hell does a <laughs> cosmologist who won the Nobel Prize know about gain of function right. or about yeah, yeah. the Iran deal? And, of Iran. and by the way, some of them have Alzheimer's late stage. Some of them have had to sell their Nobel Prize to pay for their Alzheimer's case. It's despicable the way that we manipulate and use the halo that surrounds these individuals who made a good accomplishment and something that they've done. But on the other hand, they have no moral wisdom to teach us whatsoever. Sure, yeah, that's a good example. They may, but they don't by force of their Nobel Prize. Sure, yeah. Uh, it, it's the, the way we assign authority to things is very bizarre. So you talk about... Um, Humility and science. How do, how do you balance humility and science and maintain scientific authority? Like this obfuscation of scientific authority isn't new. Uh, conservatives used to say that evolution's just a theory, which is at best a misunderstanding of what a scientific theory is. That it's right. maybe maybe we should just change the language so people will fucking understand it. I guess, but it's been whenever whenever science doesn't intersect with somebody's worldview they find a way to deny it in some way or another right or obfuscate the truth now how do you as and it's a problem it's like when <clears throat> when you're being criticized it's not always the best idea to capitulate to the criticism sometimes you just got to tell people shut the fuck up but when when you're dealing in ones and zeros right when you're dealing with yeah. uh an expected uh, uh outcome versus the actual outcome in a in a in a scientific experiment, then that that's data. That's all. It's what it is. How do you maintain authority and an interject humility? Like, I mean, you have to do that at the personal level. There's no way to institutionally do that in science. Right. So it's, it's well, really, peer, uh, peer review is supposed to handle that, but it doesn't. Right. Yeah. Not to plug my own books, but but my second book, Into the Impossible, is interviews with nine Nobel laureates. One of them is uh, Dr. John Mather, who's a um, he's actually the, the project scientist, the main leader of the James Webb Space Telescope, which we talked about over the summer. Um, he and I talked about in the context of how do you listen to criticism and take criticism, as I always say, you want to take the criticism not to your heart, uh, just like you don't want the the compliments to go to your head. Mm -hmm. And that's a very difficult thing. And, and by the way, we as scientists, we never get training in ethics. We never get training in like, how do you behave morally? Oh, no, no, no. Those things are out. Those things aren't as important as knowing advanced quantum field theory. And that's why we teach advanced quantum field theory, but we don't teach uh, moral. I think we have it backwards. I think we don't assume the totality of scientists as being human beings at a core level. And we kind of think of them as atomic tons with with you know as you say the deal in zeros and ones and so uh, but you know have you ever you know had a bad result from your computer mm. well you know if you're asking it to add things up or whatever even with like gpt chat and all this stuff you can find huge biases and flaws and the fundamental thing that you're bringing up is called confirmation bias mm. which is this huge tendency that human beings have among many of our other peccadillos and lacunae and faults and flaws that we tend to discard evidence that disagrees with our own chosen hypothesis. And we tend to accept things that agree with it, even though they might be wrong. Like again, Galileo assumed was right that the moon goes, uh, uh, sorry, that the earth goes around the sun, but his evidence that he accepted confirmed his hypothesis rather than being kind of dispassionately disconnected from it. So John Mather won the Nobel prize. Um, and, and, and he says, 
you know, how do you get beyond, there's a tendency in popular imagination to think that science in, is about e credit, egos, and politics. In your outreach, how do you get beyond it? My perspective, John Mather says, so we're all in this together. Even if we're competitors, if you're working on a project and I'm working on a project that's supposed to measure the same thing, we don't get the same answer. That's really important. As scientists, our job is to figure out where the discrepancies lie. And a good scientist will look for the discrepancies and not take them personally. Oh, you know, you, you're off by three standard deviations from mine. You're an idiot. Are you kidding? You mm. No, you look for the discrepancies and you take it. Now, most of my colleagues don't have the kind of, you know, mensch-like, you know, perspective that I would prefer that they have. And maybe I don't either. But the point being, um, it's, a, it's an endeavor done by human beings. So it'll have all the faults and flaws of any other human endeavor. And that's why this book is written not for, you know, physicists. It's actually written for, you know, my avatar when I wrote it was a car salesman in Tulsa. You know, like, how do you deal with, like, some your your other salesman, you're competing with him or her. And then, you know, you have a boss you have to deal with, you have funding, you have schedules. How do you deal, cooperate, collaborate, and ideate, imaginate, so that you accomplish great things together and sometimes rarely on your own? Um, have you seen, this is, this is kind of out of nowhere, but have you yeah. seen uh, that show Space Force with Steve Carell? No, I haven't. So one of I the, don't watch much TV. It's, it's hard for me to find. I uh, don't. Don't blame you. Um, what? A, well, I guess that that won't land. I, I wonder if it wouldn't make sense to have um, instead of you know, like when we assemble something like CERN, for example, or mm -hmm. uh, or the, which is that Large Hadron Collider, or uh, your project, the uh, the satellite arrays, or any any of these major projects, um, James Webb. Would would it be useful to have? I guess, psychologists or social scientists on board that project to kind of mm. make sure it stays directed in a humanist form. Like, hey, we're still yeah. trying to solve problems for human beings and not even to course correct people that get off course there, but just to add perspective. Like, hey, you know, this thing that you just glossed over because it's not meaningful to your research right now could be big for human beings. Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. And some of the big ones do. LIGO, um, so the... the oh. <laughs> product placement mm -hmm. uh the the the, the co-author of the foreword to this book uh, is barry barish who won the 2017 nobel prize for ligo mm -hmm. which is the laser interferometric gravitational wave observatory that first detected black holes directly mm -hmm. colliding together releasing energy across billions of light years traveling to the earth perturbing the surface of the earth by less than the diameter of a proton and measuring that in multiple times multiple locations over multiple almost a decade now that um, team had embedded with it a sociologist, now sociologist of science, reporting and sworn to confidentiality, mm -hmm. who wrote books about this. Um, his name is Harry Collins. And there were many others, Jana Levin, who's a good friend of mine. She's a professor at Barnard College. She wrote a book kind of embedded with them as well. And so, um, yes, and, and, and someone like Neil deGrasse Tyson, who's no longer, you know, practicing scientist, mm -hmm. Uh, he is very good at that, you know, kind of distilling things out um, a little bit snarky in his own way. And that's fine. He's been on my show. Yeah, he actually said he, he called me racist at one point. It was pretty fun. Uh, but uh, but we, you know, he, he just he, he said, I'm going to play the race card on you. And, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah it's uh, it his inimitable way. But the, but the point is, he's very good at distilling that. Lawrence Krauss is another mm -hmm. one who is very good. You should have him on. He has a new book coming out this year. Um, he's like, by the way, far left, far atheist, but mm. you know, we can have a conversation. It, it's not a, it's not a problem for me. Um, and, and you might enjoy it as well. So anyway, the, the point being, yes, we, we, we 
it can distill the humanity. The problem is the people that uh, the people that will read that book aren't the scientists. Uh, the, the the question I have is how do you how do you kind of uh, get the message to the choir? You know, how do you get them to to, to hear the sermon? Uh, well, that's because- kind of that's kind of on not on you specifically, but on people closer to your position to interject that into the education process at some point. Right. Cause yeah. other, other, I, if, I think that's right. If it's not injected that early, then it'll never happen. You know what I mean? And and that's why I say like law students learn ethics in mm-hmm. law school, uh, medical students learn medical ethics, business school here. We teach business ethics, um, you know, uh, different, their philosophy, they teach, <laughs> but physics, they don't teach ethics. They don't, well, what do you do when your advisor for your PhD that has to sign off on your dissertation after seven years, potentially, so that you can be a PhD and then be a professor that signs off on other people's PhDs. Mm-hmm. What do you do if she says, well, no, you have to publish this thing, uh, this these data, and actually I have to be the first named author on the paper because I'm up for tenure, review it, whatever. And this this happens all the time. Oh, yeah. How do you know? Like, what, There's no like priest or rabbi, mediator, ombuds person. There's no one to go to. And it's all just ad hoc, made up on the spot. And so you get a lot of people that have no training in this discipline uh, with high leverage and low kind of, um, you know, ROI for for the time that they might have spent on it because actually it's it's not prioritized. Even the outreach that I do, Dan, it's almost, uh, it's uh, in some cases it is derided, is like, you know, you must not be that serious a scientist because you're not spending 100% of your time doing science. As if like, you know, raising kids and, and actually like I'm in this weird state, you may, well, you're not in the same state because you don't have kids, but but um, but I'm like taking care of my parents, you know, and I'm taking care of my kids and I'm trying to teach classes of uh, you know, 50 undergraduates and I'm, and I'm teaching six or seven grad students. I always joke, you know, being professor is the hardest three hour a week job in the world. <laughs> And that's if you're a real professor like me, not like a um, you know, previous professor we talked about on the mm-hmm. podcast. You can tell I'm not like upset about that at all. Uh, but uh, uh, but but the point being, you know, we're in this awkward state and we're constantly looking for money. We're constantly doing outreach. And then we have to worry about are we being inclusive enough? Are we being diverse enough? Are we being equitable? Are we taking advantage? My graduate students right now, Dan, are on strike. They have a union. They formed a union as part of the United Auto Workers Union. Can you imagine like the union that you'd least suspect that a physics astrophysics major would ally him or herself with as as anything other than the united auto workers union but anyway they unionized a few years ago and i i said to my colleagues the next thing they're going to do is strike and mm. it took a, a couple of years now we've been on strike for a month and and these are people dan by the way they're okay look i've never served in combat my my brother-in-law has my best friends all have um, they've been in, in battles as I know you have, you get very close to your graduate students. You get close. Mm. My advisor came to my, came to my wedding, my PhD advisor, mm. Peter Timby. He's been on my podcast. I, I did it. The, the father's day episode. Um, you get very close to people that you spend six years with during the day. You're spending eight hours a day with potentially, and that you have this kind of, you know, quasi patriarchal matriarchal relationship mm. with now, now they're on strike. Uh, and so now they're not talking to me and I can't talk to them. Uh, because that'll be construed as uh, a- extra labor negotiations, and I could get sued for that. Mm. And 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 I wrote that. I said, "F that. I'm going to invite you guys for Thanksgiving dinner, and you guys aren't getting paid. I'll give you a loan. I don't even care. Like I'm not going to talk about your thesis or your research or going to Chile. I just want to see you. Mm. I want to make sure you're okay. You're like kind of like a kid. I mean, they're not my kids. I've got enough kids. But you bond this thing, and then the union gets in the way, and they're on campus, and the only time I'll see them is they're striking. And you imagine you're mother like going on strike against you it's messed up and 
and, and that's like taken us so far away from things that professors had to worry about decades ago. And I support, you know, they can use more money. It's hard to live in La Jolla, California, as you mm. can imagine. But it's um, uh, it's a challenge. And, and of course, uh, you know, I'm sympathetic to it. But by the same token, they're also getting training. They're learning how to become, you know, PhD research scientists under an apprenticeship that I am leading and I do so with great respect and awesome, awesome sure. responsibility. And this isn't a new thing being leveraged against them. This is how it's always been for everybody. I mean, the issue obviously is is cost of living and inflation, not pay. Correct. That that's but the always funny the thing is that they're they're advocate. Okay, so ninety nine percent of academia is you know kind of left wing Democrat who's allied <laughs> with labor and and so forth and union and. Um, you know, we have our own unions as professors, you know, um, but they act, you know, professors are acting like, are, are we like, you know, members of the triangle shirtwaist factory of 1907? Like, is there going to be some fire that burn, like, are we protesting against working conditions? But anyway, it's like Elon, when he tweeted out about, um, the New York times strike that went on last week, you know, and he said, it's woke versus woke. Yeah. And at least it's damn, you know, it's like the grad students you know, are protesting against the people that used to be graduate students. And we don't actually, ha I don't control how much a graduate student gets paid. It's set by the University mm -hmm. of California, not just UCSD. Um, and it's set at some level by the federal government, how much money, all the money I get. So uh, the way academia works is that a department like physics or engineering gets a grant from the government or from a private agency. And they are taxed what's called overhead or indirect costs, IDC. And it could be as high as 56%. So every dollar, I give 56 cents to the campus. It's it's enormous. And that 56 cents goes for the, you know, the philosophy department, the gender studies department, you know, it goes to all the things that don't generate income for the campus. So it's not like I have all this money and I, I get to have a money fight, you know, uh, because with my other professors, we, we uh, much of our, our, our money goes to overhead at the university, which is set by the university, who sets the salaries that the graduate students have. Anyway. Um, I'm all, all I'm saying is that these are, you know, science has changed. This wasn't the case five years ago, 10 years ago. Um, and, and I do worry, I do worry about the, the kind of constant struggle to, you know, to reveal the curiosity, you know, cause you don't really, I mean, you're interested in it cause you're, you're a curious person, but you're more curious about the science than the politics. Right. I'd rather just think about the science, but you can't, it's so impossible in the past. You could, it was really possible. And Maybe as my podcast name goes into the impossible, maybe we'll get back to it. But right now, you know, it's it's less and less seeming likely, in my opinion. Well, hopefully uh, things will take a turn. I mean, it's usually uh, under dire circumstances when people shut the fuck up and let things happen the way they're supposed to happen. Um, so, you know, hopefully we don't have to get that far down the, the rabbit hole for this to, to yeah. turn in the other direction. I do see a lot more... <clears throat> Uh, I mean, Twitter turning around, regardless of how you feel about Elon Musk, is definitely not a bad thing. Um, and, you know, just having the public sphere again to, to, to have these discussions and disagree with one another is it seems like a useful thing to be able to disagree in public so the public can figure out who's right and who's wrong. Um, yeah. But, you know, we'll see how it goes. I've got to get going. We've got to do another show here. But I really appreciate your time today and up, yeah, anytime, updating us on all things science. Uh, yeah. Let me give another plug for yeah, your uh, military heroes that are out there. Uh, these are meteorites, 4.3 billion years old, highly magnetic, made of exotic materials, unobtainium and vibranium. <laughs> no, they're made of uh, things you can find on the periodic table, the elements. And I'll send them to you guaranteed if you're an APO uh, mailbox holder, or if you are a .edu, I know a lot of students listen to you, 
Uh, just go to the link that's on the screen now, briankeating.com slash list. Join my mailing list and uh, make sure you use your the proper address. Otherwise, you'll only have a you know a part in a 100% chance of winning. <laughs> Great. Happy yeah. holidays, Dan. Yeah, you too, buddy. Thank you very much for coming today. And thank you all for listening. This has been Citizen.